becoming a software developer is a never-ending journey. Some developers started coding when they were kids. Some ended up studying computer sciences. Others came from very different backgrounds. Some taught themselves programming. Others went through apprenticeship programs. A few even jumped in via boot camps. One thing is sure though, no journey is void of bumps, forks and hard decisions. Every journey is unique and full of learning that are worth telling. So let's ask developers from all around the world how they got where they are today, how they learn and how they grow. Whether you are a junior dev starting your career and learning the ropes or maybe a senior developer pushing and guiding others around you, we have something for you. Welcome to the Software Developer's Journey Podcast. Hello and welcome to Developer's Journey the podcast shining a light on developers' life from all over the world. My name is Tim Bourguignon, and tonight I speak with Ryan Latta. Ryan has been building software and teams for nearly 10 years now. He currently works as an agile coach and scrum master with the mission of creating teams that change the world. Just change the world. As a developer, he maintains the belief that writing code is the least responsible thing he can do. I want to hear about this soon. And when he's not spending time with his family, he's mentoring new developers and starting their careers, playing games, and maybe learning to play the fiddle. Ryan, welcome to Dave Journey. Thank you so much for having me, Tim. I'm looking forward to talking with you. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. So tell us, what is your life story? Why is it the least responsible thing for you to write code? And, and or maybe let, let's take a few steps back. Um, how did you become a developer in the first place? Yeah. Um, so I think I had a pretty traditional, uh, way of becoming a software developer, though. I think, I think there's an interesting footnote before I get into the obvious, like I went to college and got a computer science degree and all that stuff. <laughs> and, and it's, I was thinking about this in preparation for this podcast. And, and I think as, as weird as it is to admit this, I think my origins really, uh, in my career started with the movie Father of the Bride. Uh, it's a Steve Martin movie. It's pretty terrible. Um, but there was a character in it and he was an independent computer consultant, which is the most made up thing I think any Hollywood writer could have ever come up with at the time. But I was fascinated with that. And I think, I think that's actually what I am now. Like, and I was fascinated with it then and it's now I'm like 36 and I realize I, I became that, that bad writing and it's awesome. Um, <laughs> But that's, that's a cool year, story. I don't know. Years, years of like not paying attention to that, going into college, getting a degree. Um, and actually, I didn't, I didn't actually start working as a software developer right out of college. I went and lived in Japan for a year. And um, then I came back and actually started my career with my first job. But I'd say what was interesting about the college piece was I learned very quickly that I was surrounded by people that were much smarter than me way better at their sort of like solving weird algorithmic problems, better at math, better at all those sort of like traditional 
development skill kind of stuff and they were better than me but i realized i had something they didn't which was essentially that at the time i remember thinking at it of it as i work better with people than these people do and that'll always be okay because software i knew by then you didn't work alone you worked in teams so i knew i'd always be okay based on my sociability uh, and not supreme development skill and so I felt pretty comfortable with it, but then immediately went to Japan and had no idea. Um, and then when I came back, I, I started to find my jobs. And, and the first real job I got that I, I generally talk about was at a, a startup making mobile applications for MMO games, which is the coolest job I think I've had to date. And it's also my first one. It's all been downhill since. Um, and so that was a crazy little startup and I had no idea what I was doing and I was writing complicated threaded C plus plus code and just creating far more bugs than I could ever create, uh, ever get rid of anyway. And I was working with the giants of the video game industry at the same time. It was just absolutely insane. The, the good news was that we, we built a successful product. We had, I, 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 think I can say what I did. I don't know why I couldn't, but um, the product I, I specifically worked on was for um, EverQuest 2. Mm-hmm. So I, I built a significant part of the mobile application for EverQuest 2, and we did a bunch of other like pilots with a bunch of other game companies, which was pretty fun, but then typical startup story is we ran out of money and vanished. Mm-hmm. And so I collected as payment uh, an office chair and an iMac and went on my way. Mm-hmm. Um the second job was that I took was pretty interesting in that it was a development agency. So, you know, you do a lot of hourly work. You have a whole bunch of different projects juggling at once, all this other stuff. And it taught me a lot about what it means to sort of have your own sense of what good and bad is. I mean, both ethically and I mean, just in terms of like, I think a lot of, a lot of developers, at least for a few years, feel like they have to, um, make their company happy at, at their own sacrifice. They give far too much of themselves up for too little in return. And this company gave me that lesson very hard, very fast. It's a very roundabout way of saying I did not like this job. Mm-hmm. But it taught me a number of things. So things like they, we had a quota that we had to deal with. Um, how many billable hours were you clocking every week? And if you didn't meet your hourly quota, you would be taken for disciplinary action, which I, I immediately started laughing at that because I was like, what are you going to do, yell at me? And that's basically what they would do. And I'd be like, this is fine. Um, <laughs> but then I also worked on products that were absolutely unimaginably not okay uh, to the point that I actually I actually put my job on the line and said, I will not work on this anymore unless, unless you get a lawyer and they, they can they will keep us from going to jail mm-hmm. and they threatened to fire me. Mm-hmm. And I said, please do like, go ahead. That's fine. That's no loss to me. Uh, eventually they did get a lawyer and the lawyer, the lawyer basically had a very difficult conversation with the leaders of the company because they had put themselves in very dangerous waters. Um, and so I learned a whole lot about like what not to be and how to take care of myself at that job. Um, and since then, I kind of carry that forward a bit. But all of those things that I worked on, you know, they were garbage. Billable hours, but garbage. I was shipping apps to people that 
no one ever used. I was making these things that were legally dicey and very unethical. Um, they weren't, they just weren't good things, but I was killing myself making them. Um, then I went to my, the sort of the, uh, my boss at the startup called me up and said, come up, come work with me. And I was looking for any lifeline out of this agency I was at. So I went there and this job was at, um, a company called wireless generation, which became amplify. Um, they made the news for a number of reasons, not many of which were good. <laughs> and we, yeah, we were chartered, um, to build a data platform for the nation's K through 12 data, uh, which, which is an interesting thing. Like you would maybe, maybe assume something like that would exist, that there was a way to see what's happening in education in the U S from a data perspective. And there just isn't. Mm -hmm. Can Um, can you explain what the K to 12 is for the listeners? Yeah, of course. So in the, in the U S we have a a sort of a public school system. And so uh, education um, begins in what's called kindergarten. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it goes through kindergarten and then one grades one through 12, uh, which is our, our, you're you're 18 at that point. If you, if you don't mess up, you're 18 by then. Uh, and at that point, you're no longer required to attend school, and then you could go off to university or whatever you want. Um, so the f- sort of formative education years, there's basically no information about it. Um, you have to do a lot of work to find that out. Yeah. And so we were we were funded by Bill and Melinda Gates to try to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a crazy experience, a lot of weird stuff. If you're crazy into agile, then uh, um, agile development stuff, then then I would say we we. We were a safe implementation, which will perk up some people and invoke the wrath of others. Um, and I, I get to I get to say it worked. Mm-hmm. It, it it actually worked. Um, and it was a crazy about a year and a half of experience. But what happened? Something that I would highlight about it was um, during that time I was on the security team, so I was responsible for. for basically making sure we maintained FERPA compliance. Now, in the U.S., we have a bunch of different compliance rules, and I don't think it's any different than any other nation. But like, if you're going to a doctor, we have HIPAA compliance, which protects your information and privacy to make sure it's not shared with the wrong people. Mm-hmm. If you're a child, there's COPPA. And then if you're in school, it's FERPA. Mm-hmm. All of them have different rules and guidelines about what you can do with data to make sure it's secure or not. And so our, our lifeblood was making sure we were FERPA compliant good thing was I didn't have to know all the rules. I just had to build the software to do it. Um, and the reason why that I'm bringing that up is it was the, I think it was like a day and a half, two days before our first contractual deadline. And we had, we had built all this stuff and we had asked if we could build, like basically do some testing with, with enough data that would really exercise the system in a real world scenario. Now, it couldn't be real data that would be against FERPA, but we could generate enough fake data to pull that off. Mm-hmm. And of course, managers like, no, don't take time away from coding to do something like that. And so we didn't. Mm-hmm. And then one developer did. He just went off and did it by himself. Just like, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to do it the real way. And, and shoved millions of records into our system. And the whole thing came apart. And it came apart in the security code. It just began. It killed everything. And so we had a problem. Our, our software would literally not run under, under the day one expected load. And it was two days before our deadline. And so, you know, 
panic ensued, meetings happened, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I made uh, a series of mistakes that <laughs> have taught me a lot. Um, I, I butted my head into those meetings, so to speak. So the general consensus was we could put a couple band-aids on it and maybe skirt the issue for a little while. And I unwisely said, that's not how we're going to fix it. This is the only, and I had a solution to fix it. Our team had already kind of predicted this case and we had a way of fixing it, but everyone's like, no, we can't do it. That's impossible. There's no way we're going to do it. And eventually enough people's band-aids, like they tried a few and they just, they just didn't work. They were inexcusably bad. Um, and so the only thing left was the solution we proposed and everyone said it's impossible. And I, 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 I remember saying this, I remember saying, well, I'll do it then. And that was the time that I basically, everyone around me kind of stepped away. Mm-hmm. They were like, we're not going to have anything to do with this crazy person's demise. <laughs> and I, I, I had a whole bunch of conversations very quickly with people basically saying, yeah, I'm going to do this, leave me alone. And I'm, and I'm going to do it in a way that is so bad that if you let this continue after the deadline, you deserve all the pain you get. Like I wasn't going to build this to be a long-term solution. We knew what the long-term solution was going to be, but I didn't have time to do that or even start it. I had time to get us out of this hot water and I was going to make it purposely bad so that it could not survive past that point. Mm -hmm. I was aware enough to know as a developer that if I write any code, it will outlive me and my time there. Mm Mm-hmm. So my, my, my strategy at this point was make it so bad that it still can't make it. Um, and so I, I, I rewrote all of our security in six hours and it worked. Wow. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was wrong. I could not actually make it bad enough that, that they wouldn't just let it run. They let it keep running that way for six months. It became such a problem for everybody that there was a an issue, like a, a mandate that came out that, A, we had to rewrite it because they were so angry about how this thing was. And nothing we ever built again could look even remotely like that solution again. Um, and I, I kind of was like, well, duh. Like, yeah, that should happen. But it only should happen because we never made it a priority to actually fix this issue. We just let the Band-Aid, like, rot that I put into and so we had to rewrite it again and we did it that time and it was fine and you know all this all this uh work that we put into this product and we launched it and we were on time we had all of our features it was done it was tested it was it was good um and legislation was passed in in state governments to prevent it from ever being used that was yeah, and, and it and it was for such a silly reason. And it was a reason that we had talked about way early on, which was we had built this platform with the assumption that people would care. That anyone would even want to use it. And at, at no point did I ever get wind that there was a a desire to do anything to show people why it would be valuable. It was just sort of like the, the field of dreams, if you build it, they will come mentality. And that during all that people had begun to get frustrated or worried, I should say, that what we were doing was fundamentally insecure. And the reason they thought that is our parent company was Fox Media, which is Rupert Murdoch, 
And he was already surrounded by a bunch of scandal for wiretapping people and all this other stuff. So, of course, people were worried that we had been infiltrated and, and done bad things. We hadn't, but the rumors had started. And we didn't have a PR group. We didn't have anyone marketing. We didn't have any of that. So the stories continued. And it got so bad that enough people were in in uproar about the potential security risks and all this stuff that the government passed laws to make sure this product could never be used. And all of the work that we put in for the year and a half, the late nights, the the six-hour rewrite when everyone's like, oh, I'm just going to walk away from this problem, it meant nothing. It was, it was a nothing ever came of it. It was the end. And it, that, that sort of began to form, or I should say solidify in my mind, this idea that all this code that I've been writing to solve all these technical problems was amounting to nothing other than time spent and effort. I was certainly learning plenty, but it wasn't having any impact on anyone's life other than mine and the other people I worked with. And I, I began to think back at to all the points during this project and, and all the ones at the agency and even the startup before that and thinking of these moments where we had the conversation where we said something that if we had followed through with it may have changed the course of our inevitable outcome of nothing, none of it mattered, but we didn't do anything about it. And I just got, I got kind of sour about it. So then I went to the next company because all the, that project stuff had all ended. Um, there were some upshots to it. Like that's when I kind of became really passionate about agile and teams because that was the bright spot about it. We had these great people around us. We were, we were solving some really hard problems and, and beneath all of it was, was this whole agile idea. As messy as it was, it was, it was doing something meaningful and powerful. And I decided that was more important than my hands on a keyboard. That knowing what the problem is, is more important than writing a solution for it. And so I, I decided that that was the path I was interested in at that point. I wasn't ready to leave development because I didn't know how, but I was kind of sure at that point that was where I needed to go. Oh, another, I guess, another interesting thing that happened um, that I, I often work with developers with is um, our first pass of trying to get this giant thing into uh, production environment was a nightmare. Uh, it was a, I think it took over a month of late nights to get it out, out the door. And I was on the call for most of those nights because I, I had again made the mistake of being someone who knew enough about everything uh, that they, they always had my, needed my advice about stuff. Everyone else had little bits and pieces of knowledge, but somehow I wound up with enough comprehensive knowledge to be indispensable, which meant I got a lot of late nights. And uh, I developed a tactic then that I haven't patented yet, but um, I'll share it. And uh, so what I what I did was I had been I had been uh, working a full day and then coming home and then about 10 o'clock until 4 a.m. 10 p.m. till about 4 a.m. I would be on the call on the phone trying to help people get this stuff into production. And that happened for about two or three weeks straight. It was. It was in I, I at about week two, I did not know how I was getting to and from work. Um, I was absolutely worthless, and I I was tired and miserable, and I felt sick, and things just weren't getting done, and I couldn't understand why it wasn't why we weren't doing this during the day, until I had a conversation with my managers, and they're like, well, you have other work to do during the day, <laughs> and it became clear like 
fundamentally we were incapable of making the right decisions about what to do with our time. Like we were deciding to add more features to something we could not ship instead of shipping it. And it blew my mind. And so I, I was like, this has to stop. This absolutely has to stop. And they're like, oh, you know, just get through it. And next time it'll be better. And I was like, tell me anything that would make me think that's true. Anything. And they couldn't. And so I was like, okay, I'll take matters in my own hands. So I said, here's what I'm going to do. Call me as many times as you want. I will answer and I will help you. But every time you call me, I'm going to have a martini. Every single time. <laughs> and they're like, you can't do that. And I said, you can't tell me what to do with my personal time. So every time you call, I'm going to have a martini. And you get to decide how drunk you want me to be in production. Uh, <laughs> you should and, patent that. <laughs> yeah. I should edit that. No, you should uh, patent it. Yeah, right? Um, the key to my success. And uh, they thought I was full of it. And so the first night they called, and I said, hang on. And I went and made a martini and came back. And they're like, are you serious? And I was like, I was dead serious. Um, and I, I worked with them, and I... I had my martini and then a few hours later they called again. I said, hang on. And I made the next one. They're like, are you going to keep doing this? I was like, I told you how this was going to work. And uh, they were like, okay. So I had the next one. Like I, I drank the martini, helped them and they never called again. And the next day they, they kind of were like, Ryan, I can't believe you did that. That's so unprofessional. And I was like, I think we have different definitions of that word. And, um, Basically, they knew they couldn't use me anymore. Not really. And so they had, to, they had to figure out what they could do. And sure enough, priority did change. They did start doing this during the day. They began to create like kind of war rooms where bunches of people were working on it the whole time. They made it a priority to never have a late night again. That wouldn't, of course, be the case, but they made a huge amount of improvements. And I mean, I'm going to take some of the credit. And I think part of it was that I was willing to basically drink myself out of a job in front of them instead of surviving that kind of onslaught. Um, and since then, like every time I work with teams that have late nights and weekends, I kind of tell them that story and, and I begin to try to work with management and say, look, this is stuff that can't happen in, in the dark of night. It has to happen now. It is important that we fix it now. Um, you're just killing people by doing this. And if they listen to me, they'll start drinking too. So that's not great. <laughs> uh, just, just one quick question. Um, how did yeah. you realize, um, you, you were completely in the, in the, in the, in the heck of things in the, in the tunnel. How did you realize that, that there was a problem that you were, um, partially, um, I can frame that, um, helping create i mean you were you were doing oh, right. it really at some point and so how, how did you come yeah. out of this how did you snap out of it so it's a good question um and i think part of it came to that 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 second job at the agency where where everything was kind of built to be terrible and and i i i realized like especially around the quota system that they put into place was was built to in a way, like just demoralize and crush people. And I began to see that every day I participated in it reinforced it. Um, that if I couldn't break their quota cycle, I was basically going to be a victim in it the whole time. And I had this sort of very early idea that these kind of invisible forces exist and how I engage with them often buys me more of it was the, what I, what I learned at that, for that second job. 
that my participation actually got me more of the thing I didn't like. And I don't, I wouldn't say it was in consciously in my mind during this time. I just knew I had to get this to stop. Like it was, it was just, I could not survive anymore like that. And so I, I, I came up with the only thing that I could control that would give them a reason to stop. Like I could yell at them all day long, but this has to stop. And they would, they'd be like, yeah, so we're going to keep doing this. So I did the only thing I knew I could do that would give them a reason to change their mind, which was become worthless to them on my terms. And that was my approach. Um, and it, I mean, it, people, people laughed at it and, and the people who were on the hook for all this were kind of crabby, but they also laughed at it. Um, but that, that was kind of the only thing I could come up with that was on my terms anymore. Um, I realized there was no, no lifeline in that it was going to, it was going to happen. And I'd worked with the management enough by then to realize their hearts were in the right place. But when push came to shove, they didn't really have a plan to avoid any of this. And so I didn't have any faith when they said that they were going to make sure it didn't happen again because they didn't, it didn't happen again because a few of us that had gone through that made sure it never happened again. Um, it certainly wasn't because they gave us permission to, uh, if we ever asked, they would say, no, get back to work, do, do what's do follow your priority list, complete your sprint, meet your commitments. Um, so it wasn't until we kind of stopped asking for permission to do good jobs that we got rid of those problems. Um, and that, that sort of decision of me saying, I have to make this stop anything, anything I can do to make it stop was how that kind of began. I kind of stopped asking for permission after that to, to do the job that I knew that had to be done. Um, well, it's, I, I, I think it's kind of lucky, uh, but it happened early in my career that I kind of came to that conclusion that if I began asking for permission to do good work, I would never get it and I would never do good work. Um, and this, this, this job in particular solidified most of those lessons, um, for me. Do you have a, do you have a special, um, a special method or a special way of explaining things, um, to, um, uh, I don't want to say color your ass, but, um, ask for, for, um, you're not asking for permission. You are asking, uh, I'm losing my English. Um, oh, sure. You're just um, doing things and then, and then asking for forgiveness. That's what I was searching for. Um, how do you, oh, do you right, get yeah. people to, to agree with what you did? So, uh, <laughs> I feel like what I'm about to say is going to make me seem like the biggest jerk on the planet. Um, <laughs> so when I, when I guess come to the conclusion that I am going to do something like this, that is that is going to be against what I've been told to do or against what I know people will want me to do, but I'm going to do it because I, I, I have decided that it's the right thing to do. Then, then I basically just accept all of the responsibility for it that I can. So the, in the, the sort of drinking example, I didn't, I didn't really take responsibility for it. I think it was mostly implied, but in a later job, um, well, I guess, I guess so in that second job, I mentioned how I wasn't going to work on anything and they could fire me over it. That was like one of those things. Like it's, it's a, I understand that I'm working against you. And if I'm not the kind of employee you want, you can fire me. That's fine. Like I understand that I'm, I'm giving you an ultimatum and you get to decide whether you want to keep someone like that on board. Um, the job that I took after, after these other two jobs, there were similar things that I would say, which was around like 
I remember they were asking like, okay, so we need you to go on, on basically night rotations to support the products. And I, I asked them how many issues they had and it was, um, several a week. And that translated to several late nights a week. And, uh, I asked them a bunch of questions around like, okay, so you, you stay up and you fix the issue during the night. What do you do the next day? And they're like, what do you mean business as usual? And I was like, that's not, that's not appropriate. Like we need to make sure these problems stop happening. We need to make it intentional to prevent these problems in the future. We need to do something. Otherwise they keep happening. Like, oh no, we can't stop. We don't have time to stop. And I said, okay, okay, okay. So then if you want me to do uh, support rotation, you can put me on the list and I will choose to answer the phone or not. It's my choice. If I answer the phone, here's what happens. Uh, you have to stay on the phone with me the entire time. Uh, even if you're doing nothing, you have to stay up with me the entire time. And the next day when I come into work, I'm not doing anything except making sure this does not come back. Those are my terms. Um, and they were like, well, you know, we need everyone to be a team player, all that stuff. And I said, that's cool. You can fire me over this. You cannot hire me over this. But that's how it's going to be. I just... That's that's kind of how I do it. Is I, I just set very clear terms, and I, I make it very clear to people that they can they can they can choose not to engage with me if those terms are too strong. I I accept what I do, and I don't really apologize for it. I just make it clear that that's how I'm going to work. Um, and I'd say generally it's a tough conversation, but um, I find myself promoted very quickly everywhere I've ever been. So I think it works out long term. It's just in the immediate, that sort of like friction of, wait, you're not doing what I said you were going to do is, is a rough moment. Um, but I, I lack any kind of fear about my jobs, um, kind of always have. So that kind of, I don't know if that makes me foolish about it. Probably does, but it lets me do those things. Um, and when I mentor young people, I, I tell them those stories and I say, don't, just because I do that, please don't do that because one day they may fire you or that may not be what you're willing to sign up for. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's kind of just who I am now. Sounds like a plan that's working out for you and, uh, standing for your, um, for your ideas and ideals is, um, a good idea, I think. Well, and I, I think it helps me focus on the important pieces. Like when I when I did write code now, it's because I believe in a thing that I believe in the potential outcomes it has. It's because I I've I've created an environment where I think success can happen. It's it's because the terms that I know need to exist for potential success, we get to them or we're intentional about working towards them. It's not just work for the sake of work or because someone's giving me a paycheck. It has to be more than that. I don't writing code is really hard work. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of discipline. It takes a lot of skill and practice. And I want that to be more than a paycheck. So when I do it, it has to be worth, worth that amount of expenditure on my part. And I, I don't apologize for the, the, the high bar that I set for what it's going to be. Um, and that includes things like, even if I work with, you know, I've, I, I'm sure you can relate, but I think every company I've been at, there's a stigma around certain practices like test-driven development or pair programming or all these things that whether we want to evaluate them as right or wrong or good or bad, I'd say they are they have potential one way or another. And I'm willing to explore anything that has potential, even if people are like, don't do that. 
And I think that sets me apart from a lot of others. I'm willing to try things that seem absolutely insane and give it a very serious shot. And that can provide some serious, some surprising results at times, I would say. Um, but it usually comes at a hard conversation because I'm going to go against the grain, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, you said now you, um, you are an independent, um, consultant, right? Uh, I wish. No, I'm not quite independent yet. Oh, okay. Yeah. But that was the, uh, the reference to the movie, The Father of the Bride, at the beginning. I, yeah, I know. I was jumping the gun. It's, it's in my plans to, to move, to go independent in the near future, I think. But, mm-hmm. um, I'm not there yet. It scares, it scares me a lot to go fully independent, but it's, it's still where my heart is, even after all these years to do that. Mm-hmm. Why that? Why, why the independent piece? Um, why does it scare you to, uh, to make this film? Oh, so the, the, yeah, so, there is a certain amount of comfort that comes with working, <laughs> working under with salary and benefits at a company and stability and all that stuff. The, the thought of having to find my own work or market myself, sign contracts and all that to, to do the work that I think I'm pretty good at. And it's the work I love. That kind of instability and uncertainty and all those other skills um, give me a lot of doubt and hesitation, especially since I know that that's, that's the the money that my whole family depends on like that's it's a, it's funny to me how much risk i'm willing to take at a job and how little risk i'm willing to take to get the job that i think is in my dreams like that's i can't reconcile it but that's kind of who i am right now yeah that, that's that's the knot i was uh unable to untie in my mind um that's exactly what i was mm. uh hinting at and yeah and yeah one one amazing thing um i'm just um reading my notes um, you had some pretty extreme experiences or um, i'm not sure if it's uh or if it's uh, the, the epic way um you used to uh to translate <laughs> them but but starting with game programming it's kind of um in every second mouse, uh, when you talk with junior developers, that they want to start in game programming, but you actually did it. Yeah. And then experience the, uh, the horror of, uh, unethical uh, development, then on canceled projects. Um, this is kind of amazing that you had all those, uh, those very extreme experiences. Well, I'm trying to give you a good, a good show, man. Uh, can I <laughs> yeah. say? Uh, you're well, doing great. I am, I am, I am picking the most. I guess the most interesting experiences of what's been nearly a decade. Uh, and we've talked about half of it so far. There's a whole nother piece that's, that I don't think we're gonna have time to cover, but, um, I think, I think in most of it, you know, I've covered some of the most formative experiences, uh, that I've had as a developer and the rest of them are refinements of, of those same elements. But, um, I don't, I don't generally think that what I've been through is different from many people. Actually, I don't know if that's true or not. I think people see the same types of things in these same, I, w- I would assume so. Um, most of the people I've worked with as developers have variations of these stories. Um, but maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. No, um, yeah, I didn't realize that you were, you were cherry picking, um, the horror, uh, stories. <laughs> but that makes sense. Yeah, I, I had my fair share of, uh, of uh, canceled projects and, and late nights and, and arm twisting and, and stuff. But, um, yeah, I guess I guess that's 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 pretty common, unfortunately. Right, and it's 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 I think it's that's the to me that's what why I think a podcast like yours can be so so great is these experiences I think 
while they suck to go through, are not so uncommon that you could go, I think, have a career and never see them. And I think the people that have gone down this path and figured out how to make uh, a fulfilling career out of it in spite of these experiences is why why we have to talk and why we have to say, what what did we learn and what do we do now that makes it livable or even fulfilling in spite of all of it? Like, that's that's why this matters. I I get... Like when I'm I'm mentoring other developers and they're starting off in their career, I I always get a little bit downtrodden when I have to. They come back after a few weeks of their new job and they're like, "Hey, is this normal?" And whatever they're about to say is something that I'm going to have to say, unfortunately, yes to, and and help them work through uh, an experience that. I mean, sometimes it's warranted, but oftentimes it just it's just going to be painful and. I think anything our community can do to to help people raise the bar in the organizations they're in or in their own lives, I think, is, is where we got to be. I mean, I don't care what language you program in. It's just, this is just life. It's got to be more than that. Mm-hmm. Amen to that. Um, I'd be interested in, in just um, digging a bit in this mentoring. Um, how do you pick um, your mentoring partners or your mentees? Um, so I've, I've I've really only mentored two I mentored, I mentored one person and then, um, so they, the first person I mentored really, um, I was at a, a small consultancy. There was like six of us and they needed some extra help. So they brought someone in like a, a friend, never, never written a line of code before, never even seen a line of code. Like, and, and then the thought was, well, we could help them get started and then do that. And that began, um, a two year kind of mentoring relationship um and so that that one sort of started off as a he showed up to work one day and i i said yeah i'll help you out and two years later you know he's got other jobs he's being promoted quickly he's doing great and he's he's learning what it's like at all these companies and he's going through these experiences and i'm like yeah welcome to the crappy reality that we sometimes deal in um and he's figuring out what he wants to be when he grows up so to speak um the other one that I'm, I'm mentoring, I, I I kind of lurk and sometimes participate in a website called Dev2, and it's a it's a neat little website kind of community built around. Um, I think it's originated with like more novice developers, people who are really interested and hungry and all that stuff. And I decided to sign up um, to see how I could help people, and they launched a mentoring program, and so I said I'm available, and so they paired me up with someone. And so I'm, I'm helping them figure out how to get a job and grow some of their technical skills as required and stuff like that. But so far, that's, that's kind of it. Uh, just those two right now. Okay. Cool. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one, one last question is something that, that's, um, that's not bugging me, but amazing me. Um, you seem to have, um, had throughout your career, um, all the time had a pretty deep introspection, um, ability. Um, from from the very beginning, being realize, being able to realize um, what is ethically correct and what is not, and what um, you're willing to do and what you're not, and and figuring a path right away. Um, am I assuming too much, or am I interpreting something? Uh, um, no, I mean, I guess eventually I would get to these places. I would say, in our conversations, it's hard to un unpack the time it took, right? So. Um, sometimes these decisions took took weeks, months, 
for me to arrive at while I was kind of struggling with it or grappling with these things. And um, somehow I, I arrived at the conclusions that I did. Um, sometimes they were more glaringly obvious. Like um, one thing I had to build was a mobile application that allowed people to buy drinks for one another. That doesn't seem superficially bad um where it got really dicey really quick was when i said so since we're talking about alcohol don't we need to put an age verification piece in and the answer was no that would hurt our target audience and that's when i was like okay this has to stop this is no longer okay to me and that's when we i I gave the ultimatum about the lawyer and they called him up and they're like yeah you don't want to do that um so that was like an easy one Right. Before then, it was like, okay, it's a cool little app. You can buy drinks for your friends. And then it was the, we're specifically targeting underage people. And that, that was the, that was the no. Um, some of the other ones were just, I hate to say it, but like, you just get this feeling like this can't be right. This can't be, this can't be normal. Um, and eventually I actually wound up with a question that I, that sort of runs through my head on repeat, which is, um, if I'm wrong, what does that say about me? And I use that question all the time when I'm experiencing things to sort of figure out, am I, am I looking at the right things? Am I not considering things? Am, am I going along with something that may not be the right thing? That question kind of keeps me in check, um, in a great number of ways. Um, and so I, it just runs on repeat all the time for me, and it helps me very quickly sniff out things, I think. Not always tell me the answer, but at least I know something's amiss, and I, I need to figure something out, try something. Cool. Very interesting. Very interesting. This is a thing I've, I've been pondering myself um, in my in my very own mentoring. Um, considering new developers, there's always this 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 fine line that you have to uh, to tread, helping them start to retrospect and introspect on everything they're doing um, when they have no idea what the context, what the system uh, the system is doing, and where where is the beginning, where is the end, and you have to guide them through this, but you don't want to hash it too much and 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 explain them too much, and it's really really a hard um, line to play, I think. So I'm, I'm struggling with that. I think so too. Yeah. Um, I, I think one thing that I usually do with, with my, my mentees is, um, a question I usually ask them is like, so they, they'll tell me whatever they think and I'll say, what's an alternative? Give me a real alternative, something else that it could be. And that's usually a good, that usually unlocks things. I do it to myself all the time because I, I get pretty opinionated. Uh, I don't know if that came through in this whole conversation. Oh, absolutely not. Uh, but, uh, when I, yeah. Thank you. Uh, but when I'm, when I'm, when I'm on good behavior, that's something I also do to myself is like, okay, okay, so I'm, I'm like 100% sure this is the thing. And then I have to go through the hard work of what's an actual alternative mm-hmm. and kind of that knocks me down a few pegs pretty good. Um, and helps me be open to a bunch of other possibilities that I wasn't aware of. Mm-hmm. I, I love, I love doing this as well. What, what's, what's another option? Yeah. And people usually ask, oh, well, how, how long are you going to ask for all the options? I say, well, as long as you mm-hmm. come up with options in less than five minutes, then I will continue asking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As long as it's a real option, we can keep going. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we're unfortunately, um, almost at the end of our time box. Um, very mm-hmm. quick. If you were to hire someone today, what skill would you be looking for? What skill? Um, at this point, 
I would, I would actually, I would look for not so much their technical skills or any one of them. I would look for interpersonal skills, probably the first and foremost at this point. I, I'm at the point in my career where I think software development as challenging as it is, is very teachable, but creating, creating a team that can deliver something that's remarkable isn't a technical problem. And the people I work with are the ones that I want to have. I want to create teams that change the world, which means the bar has to be a bit higher than something like JavaScript or React or um, JBoss or any of that. I, I want people that can build build great things around them. Their hands on the keyboard is just the, the last thing they do. Fantastic. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, like always, at the end of the podcast, um, feel free to plug anything you have on the plate coming up. So the podcast will be coming in January. Do you have um, any talks coming up? Do you have any blog to um, to advertise anything on the plate? Yeah, so I'll I'll embarrass myself, I guess. Um, so I, I do have a blog. Um, if anyone sees it, that'd be the first person. Uh, it's it's my name. It's RyanLatta.com. I I write insane things there. Uh, um, the I'm also on Twitter. It's Recursive Faults is my my handle. Please annoy me there. Start talking about stuff, and I will respond because I can't help myself. Um, I, I do do uh, I am starting to do a number of conference talks, um, but uh, I don't know when my next one will be. I'll be submitting for Lean Agile US that would be in February coming up soon. But otherwise, I don't have any of that going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess you will be tweeting about it um, if and when that happens, right? Yeah, yeah. If I, if I'm if I'm accepted, then I'll uh, I'll certainly be be uh, freaking out publicly on Twitter about it. What we, uh, what are you going to speak about or would like to speak about? Uh, so there's there's two talks I have in my head. Uh, one of them is a variation of the one I just did, which is how to facilitate a team boot up. Um, just a, a nose hold barred. How to how do you facilitate something like that? And what is it? Why would you do one? Um, I just recently did that at Lean Agile Kansas City, and it was. Um, I had to speak as fast as I could to get through it. It was so much material. So it'd be variation of that and cutting it down. The other talk, and this is the talk that I, I, I've, I always wanted to give and I just don't know if I'm ready for it. And it's, it's something like everything I learned about being a scrum master, I learned from being a dungeon master as a reference to games like Dungeons and Dragons and tabletop role playing games. So I'm, I'm, I'm debating between the two. Oh, that, that would definitely get, uh, get an audience, I guess. The second one. I mean, the first I would, one is also really interesting, but the first one has, yeah. uh, has a gamey, uh, gamey flair to it that always attracts people. It, yeah. So uh, the good thing would be that I spoke at that same conference last year, and I threatened that that would be the talk I would give soon. So it might be time to pull the trigger on it. But I am just so embarrassed about it. So I have to get over that one. Don't be. Just try. Be blunt. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. Um, did we miss any topic that you wanted to um, address? Um, I would say I, I try to be as available to people as I can online. So anyone who has any questions or, or wants advice or wants mentoring, just reach out to me. I'm, I try to be as available as I can. Thank you very much for that. And we'll leave mm-hmm. it to it. And this has been another episode of Developer's Journey. Thank you, Ryan. And we'll see each other in two weeks. Bye-bye. <laughs>
listener. If you haven't subscribed yet, you can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, Spotify, and much more. Head over to www.devjourney.info to read the show notes, find all the links mentioned during the episode, and of course, links to the podcast on all those platforms. Don't miss the next Developer's Journey story by subscribing to the podcast with the app of your choice right now. And if you like what we do, please rate the podcast, write a comment on those platforms, and promote the podcast on social media. This really helps fellow developers discover the podcast and those fantastic journeys. Thank you.